0: Welcome to New Books in the American South. I'm your host, Brandon Jet. On today's podcast, I'm speaking with Guy Lancaster, the editor of the Online Encyclopedia of Arkansas, a project of the Central Arkansas Library System, and the editor of the award-winning Bullets and Fire, Lynching and Authority in Arkansas, 1840-1950. to 1950. Today, he's here to speak with me about his most recent book, American Atrocity, The Types of Violence and Lynching, published by the University of Arkansas Press in 2021. Drawing from the fields of history, philosophy, cognitive science, sociology, and literary theory, and quoting chilling contemporary accounts, Lancaster argues that the act of lynching encompasses five distinct but overlapping types of violence. This new framework reveals lynching to be even more of an atrocity than previously understood, that mobs did not disregard the humanity of their victims, but rather reveled in it, that they were not simply enacting personal vengeance, but manifesting an elite project of subjugation. And on that really positive note, uh, Guy Lancaster, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. For those listeners who are perhaps unfamiliar with you, uh, you've been firmly enmeshed in Arkansas history for quite some time. Uh, Outside of your research into lynching, what first drew you to the study of the state's history, and what is it about Arkansas that you find so captivating?
1: Um, Well, what drew me to the study of the state's history? I got a job here. (laughs) That helps. Yeah. As you mentioned, I'm editor of the uh, Central Arkansas Library Systems Encyclopedia of Arkansas. I've uh, been that well, I've been in a position with the Encyclopedia of Arkansas since 2005, so uh, I've been here quite a while. I'm sort of an Arkansas native. I wasn't born here, but I grew up here, uh, educated here.
0: Okay. Um, what
1: part of Arkansas? I grew up in Jonesboro, Arkansas. It's in the northeastern corner. Mm-hmm. Current, currently live in Little Rock. So, you know, I've, I've kind of been in the state quite a while and been studying the state Quite a while, and and one of the things that uh, drew me to work on the Encyclopedia of Arkansas is um, how much Arkansas history I didn't get growing up, mm-hmm. right? Uh, even you know, in once, Arkansas, e- even in Arkansas, once you start to delve into it, uh, you know it, it's it's a, a strange and and very interesting place, very very understudied. Mm-hmm. Um, So, yeah, what what drew me to the study of the state's history is I was here and I was working, you know, on on the state's history. Um, But what about Arkansas is so captivating is, you know, it's existed on the margins for so long that, uh, you know, being a Trans-Mississippi state and much of the country's early history, it was, you know, literally on the margins of of the nation, Uh, even in the South you know, the old slaveholding South. It was mm-hmm. on the margins, again, because it was across the Mississippi River. Uh, it didn't develop until much later. It didn't, you know, have a network of railroads before right. the Civil War. Um, you know, so there are parts, a large part of the the history of the state doesn't fit into either the South, uh, you know, that old South Confederacy or or the West, really. Um, and And also it's got a geographical diversity that that makes studying it complicated. Mm -hmm. You have uh, eastern lowland areas that were, uh, you know, early developed as plantations, uh, slave plantations. You have highland areas in in northern Arkansas, western Arkansas, um, you know, that followed more along the lines of Appalachia. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you have a southwestern part of the state that gravitates more toward Texas. Um, you know, so it, it really, it doesn't fit into a neat box and, and, uh, I like things that don't fit into neat boxes.
0: Yeah. Is that the subtitle of the encyclopedia? It doesn't fit into a neat box. Things that don't fit into neat boxes. Yeah. I like it. Um, so have, have you always had a general interest in history and then you, you got a job, uh, to do the encyclopedia or, or did you just kind of stumble into that?
1: Um, kind of both. (laughs) Um, I, I was, I was getting my PhD in heritage studies from Arkansas State University Mm -hmm. and I needed an internship. Uh, I came down to the Encyclopedia of Arkansas and they had an opening, you know, that fit me because they needed someone who had previously worked on encyclopedias, Mm -hmm. done some encyclopedia editing. And, um, as part of my, uh, graduate assistantship, I'd assisted a professor at ASU uh, editing an encyclopedia, okay. Uh, four set Greenwood, four, four volume uh, Greenwood Encyclopedia of World Folklore and for, Folk Life. So, you know, encyclopedia writing and editing is sort of a rarefied skill, absolutely. And, and I happen to have it. And <laughs> you know, as as you know, any any PhD student who's lucky enough to land into a job,
0: absolutely, absolutely, you, know, you jump at so, it. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, um, you know. Lynching is such a difficult topic for people to research, write, and learn about. Um, and as I mentioned in the introduction, this is not your first effort uh, at mm-hmm. looking at lynching and other forms of racial violence in the state of Arkansas. Uh, so what drew you from, I mean, above and beyond just a general interest in, in, in Arkansas's history, what was it about the the topic of lynching in the state uh, that that drew you into this? this kind of work?
1: Well, I'd actually done my dissertation and my first book on the phenomenon of racial cleansing uh, or expulsion of black communities. Yeah. It has a deep um, history in Arkansas. Right. Right. Um, probably the most well-known is Harrison. It, it has attracted national and international headlines, but you know, there are a lot of uh, less well-known so-called sundown towns. Mm-hmm. Uh, James Lowen, the late James Lowen had done a lot of research on that. Um, so that was my, that was my dissertation topic. And, you know, while researching that often, you know, the, the, the sole, uh, guidepost I had were census figures, Mm -hmm. you know, here's 1910. There's a black community here of, you know, several dozen people, uh, 1920, there's not. Um, and, you know, back in the day, the, uh, you know, sole recourse I had was go down, load up some microfilm of the local newspaper, and crank through ten <laughs> pa- you know 10, ten years of microfilm to try to find out what was going on. Yeah. But but what struck me, you know, cranking through the microfilm is that, um, you know, I'd be cranking through looking for this one local event, and the newspapers are reporting all the time about you know, lynchings that were occurring in other parts of the state. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my first thought was I'm researching the wrong thing. (laughs) You know, there's much lower hanging fruit researching lynching. Right. Uh, You know, but I mean, I went on with, with, uh, you know, my work on racial cleansing, uh, you know, with putting a pen in the subject of lynching uh, afterward, because, you know, it, another thing that really needed, uh, you know, discussion and, and revelation. I think so. So that's kind of what drew me to that. After mm-hmm. I finished the book on racial cleansing, um, I'd known a few other scholars who had done some research into lynching in the state, uh, and so contacted them, and uh, we put together the the edited volume "Bullets and Fire,"
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, which was really worthwhile.
0: And then you thought, I want to take one more crack at it. Uh, right. You know. <laughs> I'm really interested in this this idea uh, of looking at lynching more thoroughly. Um, When I was getting my master's, uh, I did a a thesis on lynching in Northeast Texas, which brought me right up to Texarkana, so close to Arkansas, Mm -hmm. but but maybe not quite in there. Uh, But even at that point in time, I thought this is a very, very crowded field. There are a lot of people who have done a lot of really fantastic work on the topic of lynching in the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I just wanted to know as, as you kind of looked at the field of lynching, uh, what was it that made you think, you know what, I think I have something more to contribute here. Uh, not everything has been done. There, there, are, there are some gaps that I can fill uh, with, with this new book, American Atrocity.
1: Well, I think the main gap, like when I was researching racial cleansing, uh, you know, there hadn't been a lot written about racial cleansing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was largely reading some secondary literature on ethnic cleansing. And ethnic cleansing bleeds over into issues of genocide. Uh, you know, so suddenly I'm reading books about genocide. And and there's a lot of good stuff. I was listening, talking about the New Books podcast. Uh, you know, one of the podcasts I was listening to on a regular basis at the time was uh, New Books and Genocide Studies.
0: Hey, we always uh, like to plug other New Book Network
1: uh, channels I, on here. I highly recommend it. But, you know, one of the things folks in the field of genocide studies were doing was... Trying to look at commonalities uh, across case studies. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, looking at what what unites these various events. What what sort of characteristics uh, do we find common? You know, leading up to these events, during the perpetration of these events, after these events, and you know, a very a very sort of broader framework. Um, and one of the things that had dissatisfied me about the study of lynching uh, up to that point was that there didn't seem to be a broader theoretical framework on quite the same scale. Sure. Um, you had studies of lynching in the West that were looking at it more through you know, outlawry and criminality, mm-hmm. uh, studies on lynching in the South looking at it more through uh, the prism of race and continuation of slavery and the like. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to, you know, with American Atrocity, take some of the broader framework thinking I'd gleaned from, you know, all that theoretical reading, and and apply it to the issue of lynching.
0: Yeah, I think you did a really, really fantastic job of bringing something new to the table. And honestly, when I first got the book, I thought, Oh, great. Here comes another lynching book. Yeah. It's just about a different state. And it's going to just talk about similar patterns that we've seen and just say, Hey, but this happened in Arkansas, Arkansas matters mm-hmm. too. Uh, but I thought you really went above and beyond just saying, Hey, mm-hmm. here's another state where lynching happened. So congratulations on, on on, on, on really putting together a great book. And as, as you kind of just brought up. Uh, This book is obviously based on a lot of research, newspaper accounts. If anybody who's ever studied lynching kind of knows that that, that in many ways is the bread and butter uh, of of the primary source base. Uh, But as you just suggested, you took it one step further and really got into several different theoretical approaches to the study of violence in general from a number of fields. Uh, The five chapters are largely focused on understanding lynch mob violence and unique, but as you you argue, reinforcing theoretical frameworks. And so I thought uh, it might be worth it to briefly explain. Blame each framework okay. as, as yeah. kind of simplistically as mm-hmm. you can, obviously, and then maybe provide us with uh, a couple of explanations as to how each framework kind of distinctly functions, um, or is at least present in these in these instances uh, of mm-hmm. lynch mob violence. So I yeah. know that's a lot to put on you, that, um, but if you could just give us kind of a, a rundown, that would be great.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I start with looking at lynching as group violence, uh, and this is a slightly different take on uh, the notion of collective violence, Mm -hmm. that group violence can be perpetrated by a group, uh, you know, a large collective of people against a, a person or persons, uh, but it can also be perpetrated against a group. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so, so that even the killing of one person can be group oriented if that killing is to intimidate, uh, a larger group of people. Sure. Um, the second framework I look at is the framework of structural violence. And to this I'm really indebted to the geographer James Tyner. I, I think he frames it brilliantly. He says there's the violence of killing and the violence of letting die. Mm-hmm. And structural violence is the violence of letting die. It is what a violence. Great yeah. The the violence of structural production of inequality that reduces life opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the third one I look at is humanism. And this I really draw from the philosopher Kate Mann, um, who, you know, there's, there's this uh, prevalent notion that in order to perpetuate um, violence or, or atrocities of, of large scales like this, you need to first dehumanize a population in the eyes of others. And she actually argues Um, against this, that, that something that isn't human is not as much threat as something that is human. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and she, she really adopts, you know, a a critique of the the humanist, you know, this, this, this perspective that groups have to be dehumanized first. She says, what makes something a threat is the fact that it's human. The fact that it can compete with you for love, attention, money, and the like. Mm -hmm. Um, Fourthly, I look at issues of virtue, and that is, um, you know, you often hear people say, "How could they do something so terrible, so evil?" Uh, the the aspect of virtuous violence that that framework, uh, the adopted by by two psychologists, Fiske and Rye. Um, what they assert is that perpetrators of violence believe that they are acting virtuously, that they are doing what is what is morally right, mm-hmm. uh, not only in their own eyes, but in the eyes of larger communities. Um, and so looking at how people who were uh, perpetuating perpetrating lynchings uh, saw it as a just thing. Um, and lastly, I look at matters of uh, scapegoating. Uh, drawing largely from the work of theorist Rene Girard, mm-hmm. who who saw um, scapegoating as a, a an outgrowth of what he called mimetic rivalries um, that, you know, we learn what is desirable by viewing others mm-hmm. and, and we start to imitate their desires or well, when we start to imitate uh, their desires, we become competitors. With them for the desirable thing, and so this produces, you know, a, a social conflict that threatens to to explode, you know, unless it's dealt with through the uh, mechanism of scapegoating something, expelling or eliminating it from the community, um, and and this, you know, talking about the overlapping, you know, it's the scapegoating ties back into. Um, for example, the the humanist aspect of violence, because you can't scapegoat something that is completely estranged from the community. It has to be both within the community and without. It has mm-hmm. to be completely human, but it has to be marked in some other way. Okay, that that designates it as you know you're you're uh, able to to expel this you know without threatening the community. Um, you know, it's also group violence and that it's perpetrated by a group upon an individual or individuals for the virtuous preservation of the group. Mm-hmm. You know, so so all of these overlap. And, uh, you know, I, I do have to say, you know, you you write a book, you publish a book and then you read something that makes you rethink it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I later encountered a, a book uh, by a guy named Mark Ayesh uh hermeneutics of violence and he used the term dimensions of violence and i wish i'd encountered that book beforehand uh you know and adopted the term dimensions of violence rather than Mm -hmm. types because type you know makes these sound a little more separate than they are right you know they really are different ways of viewing the same phenomenon
0: Mm -hmm. absolutely
1: i really like dimensions of violence and if this ever goes to a second edition for whatever reason i'm i'm stealing that mark
0: you'll know what to do uh, yeah (laughs) Um, So for any listeners who are thinking, oh, my gosh, that was just so much theory that was thrown at me uh, so quickly. I will say it is it is explained in a way in the book that that is so easy to digest and you really make connections um, that that are recognizable. um, You know, at least for me, when I was reading through it, I was a little concerned when I first cracked open the book and thought, Mm -hmm. oh, my gosh, I'm just going to be hit over the head with theory after theory after theory. Uh, But it's really done in a way a nice and accessible way and then you are also interspersing numerous examples to kind of illustrate right. the larger point uh, that you're making. And so I just wanted to ask you, where where in the world did you find the time uh, to delve into all of these different theoretical approaches? Because even within the same chapters, uh, there are layers that, that that kind of go into each theoretical approach that you do a nice job of kind of um, slowly walking the reader through. So. Where did you find the time? How long did it take you, I guess, to kind of get into all of this um, type of research, above and beyond the primary source stuff?
1: Yeah, no, it didn't take me, uh, it actually didn't take me that long to write the book. You know, once once I sat down to write it, it didn't take that long. Uh, you know, you talk about the the time to read all this theory. Well, I've been reading this for more than a decade. You know, in, in many respects, um, you know, this, this is sort of the outgrowth of kind of research I've been and reading I've been doing, you know, for, for more than a decade, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but also I'll mention again, I'm uh, editor of this wonderful website called the Encyclopedia of Arkansas. Um, and you know, to do Arkansas history, it makes it really convenient, uh, you know, to have this, uh, web reference work there. So, you know, <laughs> Little bit of cheating, perhaps, but
0: preparation, perhaps, not pre- pre- not cheating.
1: Preparation, yeah. It's it's just I don't you know a kind of overlap between you know my my uh, eight hour workday and <laughs> you know my independent research.
0: Right, right. Um, so. You kind of explained a little bit about how how these these different uh, theoretical approaches to violence, group structure, humanism, virtue uh, mm-hmm. and scapegoating all kind of blend together. Uh, were there any cases that 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 stood out to you? I mean, this is a book about lynching. I think we need to do a little bit uh, uh, in terms of understanding what was going on um, as you're looking at all these different cases of lynching that took place in Arkansas. uh any cases in particular stand out to you um, as someone who's looked at this stuff for for several decades now?
1: I think some of the ones that stand out most uh, the reader can find at the beginning of of chapter five, um, because there I tackle a few cases where you know we're we're familiar with you know that that trope of so many lynchings you know were were laid to. Uh, matters of rape or assault, right? Mm-hmm. So it's sexual assault by black men upon white women, and you know some of the first I deal with in chapter five are actually cases where it's acknowledged that this couple has absconded together, or they got married. Uh, you know they've eloped. Um, a a you know black teenager writes a letter to a girl, and that's enough to get him lynched. Mm-hmm. Um, you know those stand out to me because, you know, so so many times, like there's a case, um, Ed Coy in Texarkana. He was burned very to death. familiar
0: with the Ed Coy case.
1: Right. He was burned to death in 1892 for allegedly raping a white woman, and a later investigation, cited by Ida B. Wells, um, claimed that he, you know, hadn't actually assaulted this woman. That in fact they've been having a long-standing relationship, and that it was well known, you know, among people of the community. Uh, but there are cases where even the white newspapers are reporting that so and so eloped with, you know, this black man, or yeah. uh, got married and whatnot, you know, that they had run off together. So, you know, the, these are cases where they could have adopted that, you know, that rape framework and just right. didn't. Yeah. And and that still stands out to me because, you know, if there are these cases where they're openly admitting it here, you you know, how many more cases where allegations of rape occurred, you know, were due to the same thing. But now they've just decided to cover it up.
0: Absolutely. You know, one of the things that always stood out to me about the Ed Coy case um, is is they they the mob actually forced the woman who was at the center of all this to to apply the the match that, right. uh, at Coy. And if we believe Ida Wells, um, and this is kind of what you present in the book, uh, that she was then forced to apply the match that killed someone she was in a relationship with, um, as, as just kind of further evidence to say that, look, this was really, uh, not necessarily, a kind of punishment for, for the, these really grotesque actions of, of, of rape, but instead designed to sig- send signals and be a lesson to both black men in the black community, but also white women uh, yeah. that, that, that you also need to make sure you're staying in the appropriate kind of right, racial right. lane, so to speak.
1: And, and it violates so much of the rhetoric of, you know, lynching at the time that, oh, we have to lynch this man uh, in order to re- not just protect white women from, you know, these, these, uh, beastly, uh, Negroes, you know, as often is, is quoted in the reports. Um, but you know, to protect them from the trials, right. Mm -hmm. You know, Oh, if they were to go on a trial and she would have to, to relay, you know, this terrible thing that happened to her, it would just be too much. Well here, you know, okay. They, they don't have a trial, but they've, dragged the alleged rape victim to the site with, you know, multiple thousands of people staring at her. Yeah. You know, that, that that's not a victimization of her if she had been, you know, assaulted.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Were I mean really it, protecting? It, it just Yeah. It it just violates so many norms that it that it it shows um you know the the hypocrisy that's underlying you know so much of this system.
0: Absolutely. You know, when, when, when I was thinking back through the book and prepping for this interview, um, I, I was kind of stuck on, on the chapter on humanism where, where you make a really compelling case that, uh, it's not that white communities saw black men or black communities, uh, as, as kind of subhuman uh but you make the case as you said earlier that that they absolutely recognize the humanity of of the people of 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 black communities and black people um individually um do you ever get any pushback on any of these arguments that you make? I mean, especially saying like, no, they, they, they fully recognize that, that these, these were human people, not necessarily less than, but just groups of people that they were competing with and they needed to, to kind of come up with strategies uh, to keep them down. I mean, it's, it's, it's a pretty compelling argument you make across the five chapters. Any pushback when you've kind of put this work out there? Now, I guess the book's been out for a year. Um, What's the feedback been?
1: I mean, the feedback's been largely positive. I haven't actually gotten a whole lot of pushback on that front. Um, you know, I, I did have, it, as I was in the, in the process, I, I wrote a lot of the book in early 2020 and taught a, a fall class that year. Uh, I'd been teaching a class for the Clinton school and, uh, of public service, a graduate, uh, school here in Little Rock. And, um, you know, I I had a little bit of pushback. You know, as I talked to them about you know matters of humanizing versus dehumanizing violence. Um, you know, because that that notion that you know dehumanization efforts you know have to precede violence is is sort of so deeply ingrained in us, you know, it really and, is. I, and and I, th- I think it comes from the, the World War II experience, the mm-hmm. Holocaust experience, because it was just such a, you know, to be confronted with the scale of atrocity that Nazi Germany had perpetrated, you know, people were, were looking for, you know, excuses, not excuses, maybe, but frameworks is perhaps a better word, yeah. frameworks that would um, sort of preserve their own egos, preserve their own sense of humanity and what humanity is or is not capable of doing. And, you know, so I think they decided that, oh, the people who had perpetrated these must have been subject to, um, you know, this this campaign of dehumanization Um and and that's so deeply embedded in us. It wasn't really until the '90s, with like Christopher Browning's Ordinary Men and some other works, that that really started to be called into question. Mm-hmm. And realizing that, you know, no, many of these the the people engaged in these these mass killings, you know, weren't moral monsters. They were human beings,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and you know, fully aware of the fact that they were killing human beings.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, you brought this up and, and I think it's a really interesting point that you were writing a lot of this, uh, throughout the year 2020. Um, and I actually had a similar experience. I was wrapping up the conclusion to my first book, um, in June, 2020. So right in the throes of, of like that George Floyd summer of protests. Um, and it, it re, I mean, it, 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 fundamentally shaped the way I, I wrote that conclusion. And I changed a lot about it based on what I was seeing um, and participating in um, during that summer. I wonder if, if writing this book in 2020 did seeing a lot of these protests and having conversations about race um, and, you know, structural racism and things like that shape how you put this book together at all?
1: It, it shaped how I, I approach the conclusion because the conclusion tries to bring it forward to the present mm-hmm. um, and and i often i don't like to to take history to the present too much sure. um, you know I, I there are benefits and pitfalls to that right. um you know I often think it's we we need to understand the past on its own terms and not just look for lessons are analogs to our present time, Mm -hmm. you know, but I think, you know, there, there's a great CS Lewis quote about, you know, we study the past because we can't study the future. (laughs) And, you know, we, we need to have kind of that, that larger view that reminds us that, uh, you know what we think permanent in our own society is often a flash in the pan. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, I really want to try to understand the past on its own terms, but, you know, I really also felt a responsibility to bring it forward and and show how we can uh, apply these frameworks, you know, to the understanding of, of present day violence. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um,
0: and I mean, along those lines, uh, you ask the question in the conclusion: um, Are there manifestations of violence today that can be called lynching? So, uh, I guess I'll ask you your own question: um, Are there manifestations of violence today that we can call lynching?
1: Uh, yeah, I, I I think so. I I think you know it's sort of an unescapable conclusion of you know the rest of the book that if if we if we take these dimensions of violence you know seriously, we have to to see that a lot of this is still operating today. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I've asked this, I've I've been thinking about this a lot. And I think, you know, if you look at George, um, George Zimmerman, mm-hmm. you know, his, his the, the murder of Trayvon Martin, he was one man killing, you know, one child. Right. Um, not the sort of thing we would normally associate with a lynching. He wasn't part of a mob. But after his deed, in some way, the mob sort of post facto assembled around him and supported him. Yeah. So it wasn't it was a sort of thing, maybe it wasn't a lynching at the time, but it became a lynching, you know, as as people embraced the act of violence that he had mm-hmm. perpetrated. They, you know, they sort of made it a lynching.
0: Yeah, took to their groups. Right. Wow. Um, so at the end of all of it. You've got this great book. Um, you make some really compelling points uh, about the different theoretical approaches and how you you do, I think, a very successful job of bringing theory into the conversation uh, of lynch mob violence. Uh, but what do you want people to take away from this book uh, when they when they read that last page? They close it. They put it in the bookshelf. What do you hope their their main takeaways are?
1: I I hope they understand. You know after closing the book understand lynching as a more complicated phenomenon uh than perhaps they had previously mm-hmm. um not just looking at it you know as it, we often use the term rough justice yeah um, lyn- lynching is rough justice there's tying it into uh acts of of frontier vigilantism and you know i think even applying the term rough justice that connotes that it's a, it's at least some form of justice mm-hmm. that even if it's rough you you can still call it justice what i hope people take away from this is an understanding that it isn't justice it's 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 rough injustice it's it's uh, a form of oppression that is doesn't just exist yeah. by itself, you know, as a, as a singular act, but is, is intricately tied into the, the broader structures of inequality that existed then and that exist now. Um, and, and so, you know, you can't separate lynching from, you know, uh, the, the, the economy, for example, mm-hmm. uh, you know, where, where people are certain groups are, uh, so heavily disadvantaged, you, you can't separate lynching from, from our, our broader conceptions of, of law and order, Mm -hmm. um, that, that it's tied into all these things. Um, that's, that's really what I hope that, that people take away from this, that, that you can't, you, you can't, you know, the the achievement of justice isn't going to be involved isn't going to entail just eliminating lynching. Mm-hmm. You have to restructure society fundamentally.
0: Man, what an important point! Um, and I hope everybody who's listening to this kind of resonates on that for, for I'm sorry marinates on that for just a moment um, because I think so often we look at lynch mob violence and you see those images and you think, well, that's that's a hundred years ago. You know, that's something that's in 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 the past. Um, In so many ways, it's connected to uh, how our society is currently constructed and some of the the structural violence that that continues to play out and the very real violence that continues to play out um, in the United States today. Uh, Well, The book is American Atrocity, uh, The Types of Violence and Lynching, and it's available now through the University of Arkansas Press. Uh, Guy Lancaster, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast, uh, and thank you so much for taking the time to walk us through this uh, fairly complicated uh, set of theoretical approaches and a very difficult, tough topic in a way uh, that was very relatable uh, and easy to understand. So I really do appreciate it. I, I appreciate being here. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to new books in the American South.